podcast. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. The play began with a short, mysterious scene in which we met three strange creatures eagerly anticipating a meeting with Macbeth. It's certainly a brilliant way to whet the appetite of a royal patron who's obsessed with witchcraft, and Shakespeare now shows that he's determined to make this a dramatic, riveting afternoon at the theatre. With an alarm, a big noise from within, we switch gears into a more military mood, with two sets of people meeting on stage. On one side, we have Duncan, the King of Scotland, and his sons Malcolm and Donalbane, and a few others. Shakespeare might have been able to assume that some of his audience had read Hollinshead's Chronicles, which give a detailed account of the grisly goings-on in Duncan's reign. A variety of revolts were underway. MacDonald was leading one assault, while Sweno, the King of Norway, is also attacking Scotland. MacDonald and Norway are the two key aggressors against Duncan. It's terrific if you know this before the show, but if you don't, you won't suffer too much. Duncan and his men are on the one side of the stage, and on the other there's a messenger, fresh from the battlefield, covered in blood. Duncan asks, What bloody man is that? He can report, as seemeth by his plight, of the revolt the newest state. Now, whether this is confidence or cluelessness, Duncan refers to the various uprisings as a single revolt. This man, by the look of him, he's saying, can give the most up-to-date news. One very exciting aspect of the language in this play is the frequency of shared lines of verse. If you look at Shakespeare's earlier plays, something like Richard II, for example, there are long paragraphs of unbroken, evenly metrical iambic pentameter throughout. One character will say a line, another will answer with a full line of further verse. Over the course of his career, we see Shakespeare expanding and exploding the possibilities of dramatic verse. And Macbeth, in particular, has moments that feel like improvised jazz by comparison. Throughout this scene, there are lines shared between characters, and it gives a sense of urgency, of alertness and activity. Given that there's an active military campaign happening around us, a king under attack, this is no surprise. The king has asked who this bloody man is, and his son Malcolm answers. This is the sergeant, who, like a good and hardy soldier, fought against my captivity. Hail, brave friend. Say to the king the knowledge of the broil as thou didst leave it. Apparently, sergeant should have three syllables. This certainly makes the verse rhythm work better. Malcolm seems to have arrived only a little bit before this man, who saved him from being captured by the enemy. So he'll be in the king's good graces for protecting the prince. Malcolm seems already like a gracious soldier. He greets him well and thanks him for this service. And he asks the bleeding man to describe what was happening as he left the front line. And again, the captain picks up a line of verse halfway through. Doubtful it stood, as two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art. The merciless MacDonald, worthy to be a rebel, for to that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him from the western isles of Kearns and Galloglasses is supplied, and fortune on his damned quarrel smiling showed like a rebel's whore. But all's too weak, for brave Macbeth, 
Well, he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like Valor's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave, which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from the knave to the chaps and fixed his head upon our battlements. For a man covered in blood and presumably seriously injured, this is an amazing speech. But we are in a theatre that relies on vivid descriptions and evocative language. Messengers always tend to have great speeches. He may be injured, but he knows how to set a scene. To my ear, he sounds a little bit like the actor in Hamlet who describes the rugged Pyrrhus striking too short at Greeks. Here, however, we're getting an Egyptian reference instead. This image of the two swimmers holding on to each other and somehow impeding each other seems quite strange, but we might have an explanation. At the time he was writing Macbeth, Shakespeare was also thinking about, if not already writing, another play about Antony and Cleopatra. English theatre-goers had already seen a play called The Tragedy of Cleopatra by Samuel Daniel, which includes the following description. And since we took of either such firm hold in the overwhelming seas of fortune cast, what power should be of power to re-unfold the arms of our affections locked so fast? For grappling in the ocean of our pride, we sunk each other's greatness both together, and both made shipwreck of our fame beside, both wrought a like destruction unto either. Now, this is clearly not by Shakespeare, but it's a weirdly powerful image. It makes total sense in the context of Antony and Cleopatra, these two monumental figures whose locked passions sank together. Shakespeare's kind of remixing the image here, almost off the cuff. It's a useful image in one play that might not have any place in another. As two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art. He's describing this battle as almost like a stalemate, that everybody's kind of breathless and just holding the line, but there doesn't seem to be anything happening or anything clearly about to change. The captain doesn't dwell on it, mind you. We get back to action pretty quickly. Our focus is sent back to the merciless MacDonald, who very much deserves to be called a rebel, since to that end the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him. This is a baddie who appears to attract villainies and evil deeds like moths to a flame. They seem to swarm around him. He, we hear, of kerns and gallow glasses is supplied from the Western Isles. Kerns were Irish foot soldiers, renowned for their guerrilla-style tactics, and gallow glasses were technically their Scottish equivalent, more heavily armed and notoriously sturdy. But I think the sense here is that they've all come from Ireland, which is, of course to the west of Scotland. You wouldn't want your enemy to be getting fresh supplies of either kerns or gallow glasses. Things are not looking good if MacDonald has reinforcements. The captain continues, and fortune on his damned quarrel smiling showed like a rebel's whore. Some texts might say quarry instead of quarrel. Whether she's smiling on MacDonald's fight or on his pile of men, fortune seems to be smiling on MacDonald. Since the captain, of course, feels betrayed by this, he's on the opposite side, he calls her a whore for it. But all's too weak, he says. No words are strong enough to describe what happens next. For brave Macbeth, 
well, he deserves the name. There's much to do with deserving already. MacDonald is worthy to be a rebel, but Macbeth can deservedly be called brave. Pay attention to these kinds of language. Macbeth, he says, disdains fortune. He's ignoring something as trivial as fortune or luck. He takes matters into his own hands. And this again is something that will be of great importance in the play. The captain, messenger, takes a long time to get to the action here because he's laying out so many descriptions of things. Macbeth's sword smokes with bloody execution. We already know that it's a foul-weathered day and Scotland is notoriously cold, so as Macbeth is attacking people with his sword, it would appear to smoke with the steam from this hot blood that is being released by it. It's a shocking image. Macbeth is described as Valor's minion. Now, Valor is great courage. Macdonald may have fortune as his whore, but by contrast, Macbeth is the minion, or the favourite, of courage perhaps with a capital C. We get this incredibly grisly description of Macbeth and his steel blade he's brandishing, literally carving a path through the enemy forces until he finds Macdonald. And when he does so, he doesn't stand on ceremony, he's not polite, he doesn't even say hello, he just slices him open from the stomach to the jawbone. And then he cuts his head off and displays it to the enemy army. For brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like Valor's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave, which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him, till he unseamed him from the nave to the chaps and fixed his head upon our battlements. The reference to that actor in Hamlet was not accidental. There was an earlier description in Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage, of King Priam getting similar treatment. Aeneas describes how Pyrrhus killed the Trojan king. From the navel to the throat at once he ripped old Priam. One gets the sense that the actor playing this messenger could really milk it for the audience, especially if they're a literate one, and help them enjoy all these little nods to other plays already. King Duncan is delighted at this news. Macbeth has vanquished at least one of the marauding armies attacking the crown and cut off their leader's head. He cries, O valiant cousin, worthy gentleman. Macbeth and Duncan were actual first cousins. They were both grandchildren of an earlier king, Malcolm II of Scotland. Macbeth is therefore at least somewhere on the line of succession, even if he doesn't seem to have a direct or immediate claim to the throne. Again, the king is calling him worthy. And then the captain continues. As whence the sun gins his reflection, shipwrecking storms and direful thunders break, so from that spring whence comfort seemed to come, discomfort swells. Mark, king of Scotland, mark. No sooner justice had with valour armed compelled these skipping kerns to trust their heels, but the Norwayan lord, surveying vantage, with furbished arms and new supplies of men, began a fresh assault. Now the captain's speech starts to seem a little more complicated. Some have suggested that this is because he's getting delirious from his injuries, and Shakespeare is showing him getting tired or, or bleary-eyed. The first image is a bit confusing. He seems to be saying that just as when the sun begins his reflection, perhaps this is an astronomical reference, using the word reflection to imagine the sun's path around the sky through the year, and how at certain times in this journey, storms and thunders can appear out of nowhere. 
as whence the sun gins his reflection, shipwrecking storms and direful thunders break. So from that spring whence comfort seemed to come, discomfort swells. Just as they're starting to feel the relief of Macbeth's victory, more trouble brood. Mark, shouts the bloodied captain. Mark, King of Scotland. Mark, listen to me. Just as Macbeth has been identified with valour, he seems to equate the king's cause with justice. So, no sooner justice had with valour armed compelled these skipping kerns to trust their heels. Just at that moment that Macbeth's victory for the cause had made the untrustworthy Irish kerns run away. No comment there. At that very moment, the Norwegian lord saw his opportunity. He has also managed to get furbished arms and new supplies of men. Things aren't looking good for the Scots. And now the Norwegian begins a fresh assault. Shakespeare is so clever with language that we can get a double sense from the word vantage. The Norwegian lord is perhaps surveying this battlefield from above. And he's also spotting this advantage while he does so. This is all exemplary storytelling. The captain hooks us in with this grisly description of this awful battle. He gives us the good news of Macbeth's shocking victory, and then the bad news of the Norwegian onslaught. But the best rhetoric relies on threes, so we can assume that there's more to come. Duncan is just as engaged as we are, and he has to ask, dismayed not this our captains, Macbeth and Banquo? Here, Duncan introduces one more name, Banquo. He isn't as famous as Macbeth nowadays, but he's enormously important in the context of this play being written, because King James, the sixth of Scotland and the first of England, Shakespeare's patron, is a descendant of Banquo. He's also a descendant of Duncan and of Malcolm, but it's particularly relevant that he traces his bloodline back to Banquo, as we shall see later. And so, it's no accident that right here, and you'd almost not even notice it, but right here, Duncan introduces Macbeth and Banquo as equals. Our captains, Macbeth and Banquo. The bloody captain has had a chance to catch his breath, and he still has more to say. But for what he says, you'll have to tune in next time. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? I hope you're enjoying the play so far and that you'll tell your friends and share the podcast and keep the conversation going. You can find show notes and more information on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. If you arrive at the homepage, you'll see now that you can choose between Hamlet and Macbeth and you can find everything you need there. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you next time.